Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about digital sovereignty. There's a big debate about the digital sphere as a key economic and geopolitical battleground of the future. And many people across the EU are wondering whether we are actually going to have any control of our future in this world or simply be a pawn on a chessboard which is controlled by China and America. I'm happy to welcome an all-star cast to discuss this today. First up is Maricha Schrake, who is the president of the Cyber Peace Institute and international policy director at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford University, as well as an ECFR council member and someone who's been very active in debates about Europe's digital policy for a very, very long time. Well, as long as the digital debates have existed. Um, also down the line, we have Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, who is the head of ECFR's Madrid office. He is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, an in-house digital policy expert, and one of the editors of a recent publication that we have produced on digital sovereignty, which we'll put links up to. And finally, we have Jeremy Shapiro, who's back to the podcast, research director at ECFR. He's been one of the leading thinkers on our work on, on strategic sovereignty and has a secret history as a computer programmer programmer in Silicon Valley, which he can uh, no doubt use to inform his thoughts on this. Thank you very much to all of you for joining. Why don't we just start with the big picture on this, Maricha? You've been working on European digital policy for a long time, but it certainly seems to be much more high on the geopolitical agenda now than it was in the the days when you started pushing uh, Brussels to to have a a more strategic approach to these issues. How would you frame the, the big challenge from a European perspective now? Thanks for addressing this important topic. I think the big challenge for Europe is to actually marry the tech agenda and the big ambitions that are still on the table, but that have not translated into legislative initiatives or laws yet. And the identity as a a geopolitical actor and this geopolitical commission. I think it's very necessary, but they're not there yet at all. In fact, just take the uh, Huawei 5G discussion as an example. It took about a year to come up with an ad hoc toolbox to bridge the gap between the single market where there's economic rules for the whole of the EU and national security policy, which still rests with the member states individually. So 27 different deliberations on whether Huawei or other network companies and 5G companies are a threat to national security or not. And so this fragmentation on the national security side does not combine well with the geopolitical aspirations. And I think as technology becomes more of a geopolitical issue and the stakes are very, very high globally, this is something that urgently needs to be addressed in Europe. Thanks a lot. So Nacho, I mentioned that you just edited this collection of, of essays at ECFR on, on Europe's digital sovereignty. Do you want to give some of the, the sort of top lines from that as well, the things that you were most worried about? Well, the funny thing I guess here is that, um, you know, when we discuss um, digital revolution, sometimes we compare AI to electricity and so on, but and to say how important it is. But, um, you know, because globalization is not working properly, we cannot expect this time that the market, an open market based on rules and open societies will deliver the technology to everyone. So we can just forget about, um, you know, who owns the technology and who controls its development. You know, states were not using to the best of my knowledge, electricity to cut off other countries as a form of pressure and so on. 
So the problem is that um, uh, the idea that globalization would deliver on all these things in a way that we could forget about them, it's not present and is in fact reversing and is decoupling. So the market is leading to monopolies. States are monopolizing also uh, these technologies. Uh, and using it, in fact, to to suppress freedom and so on, which, of course, was never the case with, with equivalent technologies and, and so on. So that creates a very fertile ground for a start thinking. And we have to intervene both in the market, but also in the geopolitics of it in order to get this thing right. So everyone has free access or at least access according to our interests and our values. Jeremy, you've been, you've both also involved in that publication, but also been doing a lot of work on European sovereignty, strategic sovereignty. What does it actually mean to be digitally sovereign in this world that Maricha and Nacho have been talking about? Yeah, good question. I'm about uh, two years into this project. And I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I'm getting there. Um, and, you know, I think fundamentally it means being able to make your own decisions. And, you know, I, I think it's quite interesting when you look at the sort of digital realm, a little bit of what we're talking about is sort of a, is is this question of the capacity to act, the capacity to be the master of your own destiny. And it really looks like particularly in the digital realm where Europe has so few large digital companies, where both the U.S. and China seem to view Europe as a battlefield almost more than a competitor when it comes to digital technologies. We saw that so clearly in the 5G debate, uh, despite the fact that actually some of the technology came from Europe. That I think it's it's very clear that unless you are thinking on this geopolitical level, as Maricha says, unless you are actually fighting the battle that everyone else is fighting, you will be a battlefield and you won't get to choose. And, you know, there's a lot at stake. One of the things that's very clear in the digital age is that these digital technologies change everything from how we make war to how we make love. If Europeans want to be able to, de- to decide how they do those things for themselves, if they don't want either the U.S. or the Chinese model, and it doesn't appear that they do, they're going to need to, to struggle in that battle. So, Maricha, that what we've been talking about now is quite big picture and abstract. If you were kind of thinking about the, the next few uh, big decision points for Europeans after the Huawei uh, debacle, what do you think they're going to be? Well, there's a lot of legislation on the table around artificial intelligence, around uh, data, around digital services. And the question is, of course, when they're going to actually be implemented, how they're going to be enforced once implemented, and also how they interact with each other. All these different pieces of a bigger regulatory puzzle. Only last week, I heard another announcement that the European Commission is going to create a so-called hit list to impose additional requirements on the biggest internet companies, most of them being American. So it feels like there's uh, an avalanche of initiatives going on, and I hope that they'll make sense together and in relation to each other. What I would hope to see more of is an articulated vision of how Europe wants to position itself in the world, the questions that Jeremy talked about. How does it actually want to become more autonomous and independent in making its own decisions? And part of that story has to be growth on the basis of its principles and cannot only be, you know, being a regulatory superpower of other technologies. So I hope that the need for growth and innovation from Europe is also uh, considered by those who are now deeply involved in all those legislative proposals. One of the things that you worked on a lot when you were in the European Parliament was some of these questions to do with with data and how we relate to other powers like the US. That does seem to be a, a kind of massive issue 
at the moment in terms of how we we move forward, given that uh, Privacy Shield has been has run into legal problems. What do you think the solution is there? Do you think it is possible to have a, a kind of combined transatlantic approach to uh, these issues? Or do you think that uh, the regulatory difficulties across the Atlantic are going to mean that uh, Europeans are, are plowing a very different path? Well, Europeans do have a different starting point from Americans. We saw that under the Obama administration when negotiations about privacy were difficult and it certainly hasn't gotten any easier with the Trump administration. But I would actually like to see a much broader view of a democratic governance model of technology that does not only include a transatlantic partnership, but also working with countries like Japan, India, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and those who can align on core principles. So I would would much prefer to see that democratic uh, anchor first. And I could well imagine that, you know, should Joe Biden be elected, and we all have to await the American elections, that his vision that is quite articulated already on an ambition to convey a democracy summit, to have digitization being one of the priority topics there, could lead to a game changer. And uh, I think it's urgent. I think it's urgent that democracies work together well. Uh, We see the consistent erosion of democracy also in the digital world. And if democratic nations want to be in the lead and use their technological advantage to set global standards, they have to act and act more coordinatedly right now. Do you think that's realistic, um, Jeremy? I mean, you obviously know quite a lot of the people who could end up in leading positions in a Biden administration. How big stumbling block do you think the differences that we saw in the Obama era and, and some of the kind of just different ways that we organize our politics and our media will be in terms of... Uh, yeah, politically, I would agree with Maricha. There is a sort of will on the part of the Biden administration and on the part of the European Commission to reach agreement on this. Of course, they have reached agreement on it twice before, and both times it's been ruled invalid by the European Court uh, of Justice. And if you if you sort of look at that, if you look at the ruling, it, it, it essentially says that the European and U.S. Um, privacy structures, privacy regimes are essentially incompatible. Uh, and so one of them has to change. And uh, so there's not actually that is beyond the remit of the Biden administration to do anything about that has to be a fairly big root and branch restructuring of the U.S. privacy regime, which, you know, the Congress does not seem on board for the American public doesn't really seem to want maybe they don't know about it. And it's a big, big political lift, even if the Biden administration wants to do it. So I'm I would be quite negative about that. And I think. Uh, the sort of debate within Europe right now on this digital tax is going to make that a lot more difficult because I, I think that there's a good chance that that can proceed and that will make it more difficult for the Biden administration to come onto European approaches to these problems. And where do you think Europeans are at, Nacho? There are obviously big uh, differences between some of the member states, but the French have been uh, quite gung-ho, particularly on the digital tax issue this week in the press. We've seen Bruno Le Maire saying that uh, attempts to try come up with a with a global version of collapse so that France is going to introduce a digital tax of its own. There are two sides to what Europe does and, and the member states want to do. One is the reactive bit, uh, which is okay. Regulation by reaction, sometimes even by outrage, 
has worked pretty well ever since Microsoft and you know Internet Explorer was you know unbundled. And thanks to that, we have Google. You know, who had a, you know, it's not that it's uh, without consequences that sometimes you regulate uh, things. Uh, but it's true, and we say in this essay collection of essays that you know referees don't win the games. You know, so so the challenge for the EU is not only to be reactive, to, but to be proactive, and that involves at home, not kind of a top-down creation of telling you know on, by command and control the market how to behave and how what to produce but trying to recreate an ecosystem in which innovation is possible and that's quite a challenge especially uh, when you put that in the hands of the European Parliament the European Commission and and, and the Council and then multilaterally uh, abroad how and Marietta was mentioned in this you know how to bring on board those who are out there who feel just like us that they don't want to be the battleground that you know kind of an alliance of democracies including large chunks of asia africa but also latin america uh, that would be looking to europe for some sort of regulation way out or or middle way between the us and, and china and and i think this is the challenge that we are maybe uh, overlooking at this point, together with um, regulation on, on some key issues like disinformation, cybersecurity, which shows that these companies and platforms are still very you know, risky and damaging for democracy and our institutions. So, Maricha, you've been writing a lot of articles this week in foreign affairs on, on cybersecurity, one in the Financial Times about democracy. Um, maybe we could go into those two big topics because I think they're, they're kind of very much part of, of what we've been talking about so far. Should we start with, the, with your foreign affairs article about the lawlessness of the digital world and what can be done about cybersecurity? Do you want to lay out a bit about what kinds of problems you think there are and, and to what extent it's possible to develop new norms at a global level? It's a big question and, and quite a lengthy article, but let me try to take out some highlights. I think theme that has not been addressed sufficiently and that I try to address in both those articles and also in one article in the MIT Tech Review recently is that I think the private sector has too much governing power in general and that it has helped erode democracy. So it's, it's quite popular to imagine the world of tech governance along three models, the American model, which is mostly market-based, the Chinese model, which is mostly state-based, and then the European model, which is supposed to be mostly values-based. And I think, in fact, democratic governments have neglected to regulate firmly for democratic principles and have left a lot of governing space and power to the private sector. And this has impact in a variety of areas, in cybersecurity, in the sense that governments increasingly rely on tech companies for a view of the threat landscape, uh, for defending and building their critical infrastructure. They have to wrestle with the, the, the tools that some specific um, companies are selling that basically create the equivalent of uh, intelligence services or digital arms, as they're also called. And uh, they are proliferating rapidly, uh, depending on who can purchase them. This really puts new power in the hands of non-state actors or adversarial powers to engage in corporate espionage or cyber attacks or intrusion efforts and whatnot. So the outsized and unbalanced power of the private sector has great impact on cybersecurity. 
But I also would say that um, the, the response to the extent that we've seen a response has mostly looked to market regulation, uh, economic tools such as antitrust, and has not actually put the challenges to democracy caused by digital disruption front and center. And so I think it's important that we begin with safeguarding democracy more affirmatively, and that there is also a completely legitimate case to be made to say we need to enforce sanctions or consequences to those companies that put at stake the very democratic principles that are at the heart of our society. So those are some of the points that I made to say, how can we rebalance the outsized power of tech companies in the digital governance realm uh, and, and put more agency back into accountable, democratically legitimate governments? And what are the, the mechanisms for doing that? Because it's quite clear that a lot of people are very scared of the, of the companies. They operate at such a, a kind of uh, planetary scale that individual countries really can't take them on properly. I mean, the EU has tried to do that in some realms through uh, the work of the European Commissioner for Competition Policy, and then also by introducing norms like GDPR. But how does one actually get from being worried about these things in principle to, to having political processes that, that could actually have some teeth and, and change the way that they work? Yeah, so I think a couple of things can help, which is one, not to try to legislate too specifically per technology because it risks outdating the law very quickly in light of rapid technological changes, um, but to rather anchor a principle uh, the same way that antitrust works and greatly empower the regulator with a mandate to probe and inquire and discover whether any malpractices have taken place. And then uh, to also have, you know, highly skilled people there, uh, the budgets that are needed at the enforcement side to actually be a counterweight to the armies of lawyers that some of these big tech firms put before, for example, the European Commission when uh, a case is, uh, is before the court. I also think that there are areas where there is international movement towards um, looking at the applicability of international law. Think, for example, how to characterize attacks during peacetime, how to avoid escalation of cyber conflict. Uh, a very recent example being the intensification of attacks on civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, labs where the vaccine for COVID-19 is trying to be uh, developed are now the prime targets of cyber criminals and geopolitical actors. And the, the way in which conflict is now taking place has completely uh, changed the dynamics between states and non-state actors, but also risks, again, eroding the um, agency of democratic nations and even the monopoly on the use of force. So I think that the urgency is significant and, and it should lead to more political will and a desire to to collaborate across borders where possible, but to certainly make sure that not only existing laws are updated a little bit, but where necessary, uh, new ways to, for example, have access to information about how technologies actually work can be horizontally applied to give a better transparency and accountability position uh, on the part of democratic governments and their institutions. Okay, well, we've been talking about some pretty huge themes, which we're definitely going to carry on working on at ECFR through the work on digital sovereignty, through our strategic sovereignty work. Uh, but also a lot of the regional programs are increasingly getting involved in these areas because uh, the, the battleground uh, over 
digital policy is becoming the central front in, in geopolitics. So I'm sure we'll come back to it again on the podcast. But in the meantime, we'll definitely put up links to Maricha's uh, articles, which she mentioned, plus the, the new ECFR, newish ECFR report on, on digital sovereignty, which uh, Nacho and Jeremy both wrote in. Um, we have one thing left to do on the podcast today, which is our bookshelf segment. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? You know, usually I make fun of people for doing uh, sort of geeky things on the bookshelf. And I, I tell people to have broader lives. But this time I was actually reading a Bank of International Settlements report on this very issue on the question of central bank digital currencies. And this is the idea of this is the sort of central bank response to Facebook's effort and Bitcoin's effort to create digital currencies. And I think it's a sort of fascinating demonstration of everything we've been talking about. This idea in the report is very clear, the sort of central banks fighting back against the private companies to be able to hold on to and their, their democratically legitimate right to be able to issue money and control monetary policy. But then secondly, they're missing the, the geopolitical element of it. This report uh, is done by seven central banks, not including China, but all the other main ones. And actually, partially as a result, doesn't take into account at all the fact that the issuance of domestic, of uh, central bank digital currencies is likely to be a key element of geopolitical competition in the coming years. What about you, Nacho? Well, I just uh, finished uh, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism by Anne Applebaum. I had to you know, interview her for Her for El Mundo, and we had also a very interesting discussion on tech and uh, on whether uh, Twitter's qualifications of Trump's tweets were band-aids or sea changes. And uh, you know, she, she thought that this, this was basically band-aids because what's wrong is the ecosystem uh, and this was, has to be fixed. You know? so, so companies cannot pretend that just by fixing some of the outputs that go wrong on, on, on their networks, they can claim they've done it. But uh, to be honest and to be fair, I think if you look at uh, what the code, voluntary code of conduct that the EU has agreed on with these companies has achieved the last two years is quite impressive in terms of fake accounts being brought down and, and so on and so forth. So I think that there is a way to work with, uh, we see with, with companies, even with a carrot, <laughs> the, and, and they end up by, by being more transparent and by at least trying to comply. And this has been a good regulatory sandbox for the Digital Service Act that is now in, 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 in motion. What about you, Maricha? Well, I got something pretty exciting in the mail yesterday, which is a book that's called Which Side of History? And it's a collection of articles basically on the question of the, the power of tech companies, the, the impact it has on kids, the impact it has on democracy, and really putting quite sharply the question on which side of history these companies want to be. Uh, I also downloaded it as an audiobook because... With so much Zoom time, sometimes my eyes don't really want to read text anymore, even though I still want to consume books. So I'm looking forward to that. It's it's a really interesting set of people in there from Jushana Zuboff to Mark Benioff to Roger McNamee, Tim Harris, a lot of people who have been long critics. Kara Swisher's in there too. A lot of civil rights oriented work. People who have criticized and assessed the role of, of tech companies for a long time. And I think um, the, the combined reflections promise to be very, very interesting. So which side of history is now my next on, on the reading list or listening list? 
I um, have also got a book which I haven't started yet, but which I'm very excited about reading, which is maybe going to be an important part of the answer to the questions we've been asking. It's a book by uh, Dr. S. Uh, Jaishankar called The India Way, Strategies for an Uncertain World. And I think many people are looking very curiously at where India moves on these digital and on other issues as the one huge market which is going to be as big as China, uh, the European Union and America, which could have enormous regulatory sway. Um, and when uh, India decides how it wants to, to act, whether it's in a more defensive way, whether it's happy uh, being part of the Chinese or American sphere of influence, or whether it wants to, to go for a more indigenous uh, technological model, I think that will have a big impact on, on how these debates go forward in the future. It's been wonderful talking to the three of you. Um, if people have enjoyed the podcast, please do head to your social media page or ours and, and let other people know about it. Above all, it would be really helpful if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give us a good review and a five-star rating. We will put links up to all the things that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Maricha Schaker. Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor this week is Julia Bazzano. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.